Why do bad things happen to good people? No idea. Um, I don't know. Wow, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I can't answer that question. <laughs> that's just the way it is. This is the way the world's run. I really don't think I, I have any philosophy to answer that, actually. That's one of the mysteries of the world. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just the ebb and flow of life. Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, I guess they're unlucky. Bad things happen just out of uh, coincidence and... Uh, Part of life. It's a life process. Just uh, the way life is. Probably goes all the way back to the garden. <laughs> it's human nature. There has to be a balance in the world. It's the yin and the yang. Good people need to go through obstacles in their lives to achieve what they want. So they have... Some bad things happen to them, they have to get through it. You almost have to, it's almost a necessary evil. Something bad has to happen to you in order for you to really value the good things that come. The world's not perfect, so we're going to be affected by things that the world throws at us, I guess. And then hopefully, you know, when the bad things come, you can take it in stride, knowing that surely the yin and the yang will always balance itself. Just because things are bad today doesn't mean that they'll continue to be that way. It seems real unfair, and um, I would like to think that karma at some point would step in and put a halt to it. I don't think that God has like picked people out to like suffer, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, but I do believe that he has a plan. Now, I don't know if uh, God allows things to happen, I think just, things just happen. Things happen in more of a nature kind of way, and maybe God doesn't condone these things. Maybe they happen without God's intervention. God is in control of everything, uh, and uh, you know, events happen and things come into people's lives, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. So we determine what, what's good and bad. God is all loving and that's what everyone teaches, so there cannot be a correct answer why he allows suffering. Bad things allow um, people to realize how good God is, I guess. There's a blueprint to life called the Holy Bible. And when you don't follow the blueprint of life, which is the Word of God, things bound to go wrong. You know, look at Job, trials of Job. Uh, God allowed uh, his protection to be lifted, and uh, then he was subjected. No matter what we go through, a, a head injury, a divorce, a, a flunking out of college, anything, what, what, no matter what we go through, it makes it all relative to what Christ went through on the cross. Last Sunday at First Baptist Church in Maryville, Illinois, a man entered the church. A little after the 8.15 services began, he walked up the center aisle and fired several gunshots um, at the senior pastor, Dr. Fred Winters. And Pastor Winters was taken to the hospital where he later died of his wounds. I got on the website and uh, I want you to just listen to this, um, this very Christ-saturated statement uh, from the church family there. It says, please pray for Dr. Winter's family. Please pray for our two brave members who were injured when they stopped the assailant. Please pray for the assailant himself and his family. And please pray for our church members as they deal with this tragic loss. And then the website says, in this day where uncertainty seems to abound, creating an environment in which people are vulnerable in doing things they might not do otherwise, one thing is certain, we as human beings need a foundation upon which we can live our lives 
And the website says, at First Baptist Maryville, along with other Christian believers, we share this conviction that that foundation is God's word. And in the pages of the book we call the Bible, we find the pathway for peace, hope, and a quality of living life despite what circumstances we find ourselves in. Wow. I was just thinking about what uh, this senior pastor's routine would have been like beforehand, you know. Um, I mean, we have routines. Sunday morning routine, pre-game routines, if you want to call it that, you know. Um, for me, you know, alarm goes off at 5.30 and get ready, and then somewhere around 6.15, 6.30, I call my mom and check in with her and, and uh, um, wake her up. And uh, <laughs> we talk for about 20 minutes. It's about 20 minutes. Don't even look at the clock. But, I mean, afterward, it's, a, it's just like, it's the routine. And then, um, then I'm here, and I'm praying and then reviewing my message and then um, drinking coffee and then praying more and reviewing my message more and drinking a little more coffee and <laughs> making sure the PowerPoint gets transferred from my office to the sound booth and, uh, and then, you know, um, go get the microphone from Matt DeFanis and then I'm out in the foyer and I'm meeting some of you and... Uh, uh, and then the service starts, and then this person's routine, right? The service starts, and then after all that routine, a few minutes after the service starts, something happens, and, and then you're in the presence of Jesus, right then. Goes through all that routine, and then he's in the presence of Jesus. And uh, You say, why did that happen? Why did that happen? And that, see, that was just on Sunday, right? And then what, the next day or the day after, the Alabama shooting where uh, a gunman uh, took the lives of nine other people and then took his own life in one of the deadliest shootings in state history. And, and then that was that day. And then, what, a day or two later, Germany is in shock after a heavily armed 17-year-old opened fire on students and teachers at his former school in a killing spree in which 15 people died. And the kid fled the scene and uh, shot himself dead after being cornered by police. I mean, why does this happen? Why does this happen? And... um, And, you know, there's a cacophony of voices and opinions as to why. We hear about the issue of evil and suffering. And for many of us, for most of us, really, it's just a theoretical question. Because because most of us, most of us have not experienced any of those scenarios. We haven't. And so, it's, so it's, it's, a, it's a theoretical question. It's a, you know, person on the street interview kind of question. And we hear about those sufferings and we admit that it's, we admit, yeah, it's a problem. And some people say, well, I don't know why there's a problem. Uh, you know, it's, some say it's yin-yang, whatever that is. And some have, some have this neat system 
Some have this neat packaged system of suffering like Job's friends had and they had it all tidied up in a neat little box and it was in a bow and it was just, you know, we, we, we say that there's a problem. It's just not our problem. It's not our problem. And when we don't say that, we don't even say that coldly. We just say that it's not my problem until a storm strikes, right? And the storms can take various shapes. Maybe it's a freshman university philosophy class. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe someone in your family dies. Maybe your spouse abandons your marriage vows and they walk out for another person. Maybe you get cancer or maybe you drift into this deep, deep depression and you just can't get out and life is a slog. Or maybe you try to share Christ. You, maybe you want to be the light of Christ at your work, but it costs you friendships. And more than that, it costs you career advancement. It costs you that promotion. Or you lose your life savings. Or you lose your home. See, then we ask the question, and now it's personal. It's gone from theoretical, and it's hit us home, and it's personal. And you feel caught beneath stampeding horses. And now you want to know, what does God have to say about this? Where is that foundation? And you need to have that foundation before the storm strikes because it's like when the storm strikes, you're just trying to keep your head above water. You need something. You need a foundation before it happens so that you can depend and lean on that foundation. What's that going to be? What does God have to say? What does God's word have to say? Is there a word from God? And there is. There is a word from God, and that word is Revelation chapter 6. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. Revelation chapter 6 this morning. And we are going to hear God's word. What does God have to say about this question? Why does suffering happen? It's on page 870, page 870 of your church Bibles. And... Uh, you know, you're turning there. Uh, some of you, some of you may be thinking, you know, you, maybe you've been out of town for a few weeks, or maybe you, maybe this is your just you're just looking for a new church, and and you know the sun came up and it was shiny and the coffee was good, and you think I think I'll go to church today to hear a real cheery sermon. Um, <laughs> I, I, I understand. I, 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 I know, I totally, I totally understand where you're coming from, okay? <laughs> uh, this, listen to something that Garrison Keillor uh, once said. And, uh, I, you know, Garrison Keillor has this program, The Prairie Home Companion, and I, I, I like to listen to him. He writes a column uh, that's in the News Gazette on Sunday. I don't really, I like Prairie Home Companion. Um, and, uh, Garrison Keillor said, I've heard a lot of sermons in the past 10 years. That's how he talks. It's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, my hometown, right out there on the prairie, right? where all the women are strong, all the men are above average, and all the children are good looking, something like that. 
I've heard a lot of sermons in the last 10 years or so that make me want, that make me want to get up and walk out. They're secular, psychological, self-help sermons. Friendly, but of no use. They didn't make you straighten up. They didn't give you anything hard. And then, then Keeler said this. I was pleasantly surprised to hear this. It really was. At some point and in some way, a sermon has to direct people toward the death of Christ and the campaign that God has waged over the centuries to get our attention. I read this and I thought, he's been studying Revelation 6, hasn't he? Hey, that's got to be, because that's what this is. That's what this, this chapter is God's campaign to get our attention. This, this chapter gets us to straighten up. This chapter is hard. It's hard. This chapter directs us toward the death of Christ. So if you came here for something therapeutic, listen, let me just give you a heads up. This world's broken. It's busted. It needs to be fixed, and we need to see a vision of what God is going to do and what he is doing to repair this world, okay? And that vision is Revelation chapter 6. The Apostle John, the Apostle John is gazing at this magnificent awesome throne room of heaven there's worship going on living creatures and and angelic elders and all of creation is is glorifying the one on the throne and the lamb and and john sees the one enthroned god the father holding on to the scroll in his right hand and the scroll contains god's last will and testament God has a last will and testament. God has final wishes. Final wishes for the blessing of his people and for the punishment of his enemies. That's what's in the scroll. And the scroll is sealed, seven blobs of wax, you know, with that imprint, probably with the, the ring, insignia ring. The scroll is sealed with seven seals to signify its importance. And the scroll is comprehensive. There's nothing more to add. It's written on front and back. And the lamb is the only one qualified. The slain lamb standing is the only one qualified to be the executor of the will, to put into play the contents of the will. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection uniquely qualified him to put the will into effect. And so in Revelation chapter 6, Jesus begins to open the seals. He slits the seals, breaks the seals. And in doing so, God's last will and testament is put into play. Now, what we're about to read here, it's not even the contents of the will. It's just the pre-game show. It's just the preliminaries. And, and so what I want us to do as we're thinking through this chapter here, I want you to, th I want you to think of this chapter with, with three words, okay? The first word is reality reality. The second word is security, security. The third word is sovereignty, sovereignty. The reality of evil, the security of God's people, the sovereignty of, of God and the Lamb. Reality, security, sovereignty. Revelation 6.1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. And I looked 
And there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and, and do not damage the oil and the wine. What's that? What is that? Huh? We'll, we'll find out. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living creature say, come! And I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Let's stop right there. So much for cheery Sunday morning passages. What is this? This is reality. That's what this is. This is, these verses speak of a world immersed in evil. These verses tell about four horsemen, and we need to take them together. We need to take them as a team, a team of horsemen who together symbolize how rampant evil is on this earth. Now remember, the Bible comes to us the Bible comes to before the Bible comes to us here today in March 2009, the Bible came to a specific audience. Remember? A specific audience at a specific place and a specific time. And the audience that John was writing to, what was there's these are Jewish images. Images that that people who came from a Jewish Hebrew background would, would have connected with. They would have, oh yeah, okay. See, John himself is of Hebrew ethnicity and his audiences are. These, came, these were first heard by the seven churches of Revelation in Western Turkey. And, and, and so they would have been very familiar with images of horsemen from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 7 to 17. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Images from the prophet Zechariah and the, their role in Zechariah's prophecy, these horsemen, their role was to patrol the earth, finding peace and rest. But see, this, this is Revelation. This is the counter image, you see. And so in Revelation, these horses have different colors and they represent anything but peace and rest. They represent together destruction and evil. The white horse, the first of the four, the white horse represents the lust for military conquest. The lust for military conquest. Its rider, verse 2, held a bow, a bow, a bow and a crown. It is, the rider is described as a conqueror bent on conquest. My teacher 
in the book of Revelation at school taught me that, that when John's audience would have heard this, there, you know, in the, in nearly at the very end of the first century, they would have heard these verses and they would have immediately thought of, oh, the Parthian Empire. Because the Parthian Empire was, was the most significant threat to the Roman Empire at that day. The, the Parthian Empire was the only empire to defeat the Roman army. Twice, twice. The, the Romans feared the Parthians because the Parthians had mastered the art and science of horse-mounted archery and they, they rode white horses. But generally speaking, this image is is a general image for this lust of military conquest. And please, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to make a veiled statement against our military today or, or those of you who serve or your children serve in the military. I'm not trying to, what I'm trying to tell you is that this is a broken, fallen world. And, and the government that God has ordained to govern, as Paul tells us in Romans 13, the government is governed by fallen, broken people, and that manifests itself different ways. <laughs> and one of the ways is this lust for military power, which, which does damage, which reveals itself in evil, the white horse. Verse 4 speaks of the red horse. The red horse and its rider is described as taking away peace, and then the people fight each other. What is that? Civil war, domestic infighting, rioting. Nations often fear that. And we haven't, we haven't really, really, really feared that in our country since 1860, have we? When people actually feared that the United States would fracture. Uh, but 9-11 has put us on alert that there are those within our nation right now bent on wanting to see this nation crumble. Rome almost experienced this in John's day in AD 68 and 69. Rome had four different emperors. That's a, that's, that's a recipe for instability. And only Vespasian saved the empire from self-destruction. So evil from military conquest, the white horse, evil from civil war, the red horse, and then, see, Together, these, these lead us to the black horse, which is famine. Famine. The black horse represents famine. How, how do we know this? Well, listen. The, the rider is holding scales, but not scales for justice. Scales to weigh bread. They're weighing bread. Why would we do that? Anybody, did anybody here have to weigh their bread out this morning? Huh? Well, there's a famine. That's why. And, and war and military conquest and civil strife have escalated, escalated to, the degree, to the degree that the, there's barely any food. And you've got to measure out a basic staple like bread. And then you hear this phrase, a quart of wheat for a denarius. A quart of wheat. What's a denarius? A denarius was one day's wage for a typical worker. And so, so a quart of wheat for, but, but wait a minute, a one day's worth of work for enough bread to feed one worker? That's one expensive bagel, huh? Yeah. That's what happens when inflation strikes. These are inflationary prices, 10 to 12 times their regular cost. And, and, and so, and, but what if you have a family? You can't afford the good stuff. You can't afford the wheat. You got to go with the barley, three quarts of barley, you see. 
And then that phrase, don't harm the oil and the wine. Don't cut down the grapevine. Don't cut down the olive tree. But that's exactly what Domitian did in AD 92. Three years before this was given to the, they would have seen, oh, wow, okay, Domitian did that. Famine. The white horse war. The red horse civil war and strife and leading to famine. The black horse. And then finally, this fourth horse, this, this, this fourth pale, greenish, grayish, ashen horse. Its rider was named Death. This pale horse. Uh, he's not Clint Eastwood, okay? No. It's worse than that. It's death. And a fourth of the earth is affected. Don't obsess over the quantity. You need to feel the emotional magnitude of that seismic amount. Huh? You need to feel the quality of that number. This team of stampeding horses raging across the earth. You say, well, okay, well, maybe if this was a prophecy, when is, this, when is this supposed to happen? Fair question. Let me answer it this way. We're horrified by the shooting of a church pastor and, and then citizens in Alabama and then students in Germany. We, we feel violated at the death of 3,000 of our citizens who perished at 9-11. Like, can, can we even fathom the 300,000 people whose lives were lost in that tsunami? 300,000 people. I mean, the, the number of Americans who were killed in World War II. Over, over several years, gone in, 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 in a moment. Can we fathom that? In the 20th century, six million Jews suffered at the Holocaust. 50 million Chinese under Mao. Can, can we even, how, do we even connect with that kind of carnage? 20 million Ukrainians under Stalin. Today, currently, 40 million people across the earth have HIV. And the number who die is going to be contingent on the the, how effective a vaccine is. huh? And 5 million new cases each year. And conservative numbers put the death count at tens of millions. What do you mean, when are these four horsemen going to show up? What do you mean? When it, I mean, when Christ died arose and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus took the scroll, the last will of God the Father, and he began to break its seals. And he himself said in the Gospels, in Mark 13, 7 and 8, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains, you see. I mean, it's been that way for, you know, 1950 years, and it's, it's going to be that way until Christ comes. This world is immersed in evil. I'm, now, you know what that says about Christianity? It says that Christianity deals with life on earth as it is, warts and all. There's no attempt in Christianity to try to bury your head in the sand. Christians don't stick their head in the sand. They don't pretend there's, that there's not an elephant in the room. Listen, if your faith system cannot handle the harsh realities of life, why are you holding on to it? 
If there's anyone on earth, anyone on earth fully aware of the reality of evil, of how evil people can be, fully alerted to what human beings can do and what they're capable of one another, Christians ought to be. Christians ought to be the the most street smart about that. Eugene Peterson's a pastor. He was the one who uh, authored the, uh, paraphrased the message. Listen to what he said. Eugene Peterson once said, rather than being naively happy that the world is a mighty fine place, after all, Christians should be the one people who have no illusions about how deep evil runs. And that also means that as a Christian, I am fully aware of how, how much evil I am capable of. See, see, we want to read these verses in Revelation chapter 6 and we want to say, okay, let's talk about the four horsemen out in the future. And John calls us to consider, let's, let's talk about the four horsemen in your life right now. See, let's talk about that. Let's talk about those horses that I often use to stampede others, that I often use to steer in order to run people down for my agenda, the war that I make on others. Do I view others as competitors to be conquered? Do I? The civil war that I instigate when I enter a group of people and I just want to stir things up just for the sport of it. Just for the sport of it. The, star, the emotional starvation that I cause when I try to manipulate. This world is immersed in evil. Is there a better way? Is there? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Verse 9. Verse 9. The fifth seal shows us the better way. (laughs) And and, and the scene shifts from earth to heaven. So we go from earth, verses 1 through 8, to heaven. we, we We go from the reality of evil on earth to the security of God's saints in heaven. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe. Notice the robe was given to them. They didn't earn it was given to them. We're going to find out a little more about that white robe in Revelation chapter 7. The the symbolism is powerful. The robe was made white, get this, by being washed in the Lamb's blood. How's that possible? Well, only Jesus, only Jesus can do that. Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told, wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. The reality of evil, the security of God's people, though immersed in evil, though this world is immersed in evil, God's people are kept secure. These Christians in verses 9 through 12, 9 through 11, they're already in the presence of God. The, The slain lamb Like the slain lamb, these were slain for faith in Christ. The world could not budge them. The world could not sway them. The world could not manipulate and mold them into the world's way of thinking. You see, you see the deal is with these four horsemen? The the world sees these four horsemen, and the world says, what's the problem? What's the problem? This is progress. The world sees these four horsemen and say, this is progress. This is glorious. This this violence is convenient. It will make us successful. Yeah, there's some collateral damage, but I mean, but as a nation, as a culture, as a country, this 
This is beautiful. And in the midst of this convoluted sense of beauty, Christians show up. The Christians show up. And they are unshakably committed to God's word. They are the ones who had lived their lives on earth pursuing Christ passionately. And uh, I had uh, lunch with uh, one of our elders Friday, Kevin Jackson, and we were talking about this phrase, passionately pursuing Christ. And, and, and uh, Kevin helped me this morning. <laughs> Thank Kevin. Passionately pursuing Christ. And, and he explained it this way. Randy, passionately pursuing Christ means making Christ my heart's desire. I, that just connected to my heart when he said that. Making Christ my heart's desire. These in verses 9 through 11 had made Christ their heart's desire. And it affected their lives, their choices, their marriage, their spending habits, their giving habits. They are the ones who stood before stampeding horses. And they dared to speak about the God-man, the lion lamb who died on the cross to redeem this ugly, broken, horse-infested evil world. The slain lamb sent his followers into that same world. And naturally, when you stand before stampeding horses, the horses are going to kill you, but they're not going to harm a hair of your head. That's what Jesus said in Luke 21, 16 to 19. He said, he said, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you, because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Oh, you get that promise? They're going to put you to death. They're going to kill you, but they're not going to harm a hair of your head. By standing firm, and that means by standing firm to the point of death, you will gain life. That is this right here. We're seeing it right here. They died being stampeded by these horsemen and they're below the altar. They're secure, safe, protected and they're saying, how long, O oh Lord? But, but, but they're not whining. This is not the church nursery. <laughs> they're not complaining. No, no, no. They're not cry babies. They're not saying, this isn't fair. This, no, this is a community of believers who in the presence of real reality, they want more than anything else for God's name and God's reputation and God's character to be vindicated. And so in the presence of his transcendent throne, they're saying, Lord, how do you put up with this? I mean, we just want your reputation to be vindicated. And God says, it will be, just wait. Just wait. Just be patient. Just a little longer. There's, there's, there's more to come. There's more to come. And, and you know, someone noted, someone noted that in the past 150 years, there's been more missionary work done than the previous 1,800 years combined. And there's been more martyred for Christ in the last 150 years than the previous 1,800 years combined. More missionary work, more martyrs. And isn't that what Jesus said in the parable of the wheat and the tares? Let them both grow. Let them both grow. 
Let them both grow until the end. And so there's going to be more war, and there's going to be more evangelism, and there's going to be more revival, and there's going to be more persecution. Weren't the very nations most instrumental in that period of church history called Reformation, Germany, France, and Great Britain? Were they not the very same nations ravaged in two world wars? More missionary work, more martyrs, more. And we hear phrases in Revelation like, you know, a little longer or what must happen soon and we who can't even sit still enough to have our computer warm up. We just, you know, we go, how long? See, that's right? (laughs) Come on, make this happen. (laughs) Oh, and we need to hear first, 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, 8. It's right up there. Huh? Oh, but do not forget this one thing. See, this is the thing we're not to forget. <laughs> Don't forget this one thing. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. <laughs> okay? He's talking to me and us. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, but everyone. He's patient. He's patient, but don't abuse that. Verse 10 says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He's got to come. It's going to come. It's going to be so fast. And, And when it happens, it's... It's, it's, it's not going to happen in slow motion. It's going to happen and that's it. And in verses 12 through 17, it happens. Verses 12 through 17, the, the, the number is complete. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red stars and the sky fell to earth and as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. You know anything about strong winds? Last Sunday? that That was just a little breeze compared to this. The sky receded like a scroll. You know, like you're in your window, you've got your, your shade, and you zip, and it goes up. That's it. Sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's it. The end comes, and and when it comes, it is swift, it is decisive, it is unexpected. These are cataclysmic images that we're reading here in these verses. And and, and the kings and the the princes and and their followers, these are the very rascals who've been doing the evil all along. They're the ones. They're the ones who are now hiding in the caves. And, And... See, what these earth dwellers dread most is not death. No, no. What they they dread most is the unshielded presence of God's glory. Hide us, they say. Well, hide us. But their prayer is too late. 
isn't it? It's too late. And we don't need to say hidus. We don't need, we don't need to say hidus. You know what we say? We say come. We say come. We can say come because God says come. See? Do you notice that? Come. It came from the creatures who are around the throne, meaning it came from the throne. God is the one who's in charge of the horses. God is the one who's waging the campaign to get our attention. He wants your attention because he's in control. He's sovereign. Reality of evil, security of God's people, sovereignty of God and the Lamb. And he wants to get your attention. And he uses evil to do that. I mean, Jesus said that in Luke chapter 13. They were postulating, why did, why did that tower of Siloam in Jerusalem fall down and those 18 people were just happened to be killed? What's up with that? I mean, and Jesus says, hey, 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 do you think they were any worse than you? No, I tell you no. Unless you repent, you will perish. Every murdered pastor, every psychopathic killer, every deadly tornado, it's a message. And the message is this, this earth is on borrowed time. And God uses evil. He uses social evil and ecological evil. He uses evil to shatter any notion that people will find true security in a nation or an emperor or a flourishing economy or their health. No plan, no plan on earth, no power on earth, no wealth on earth will protect people from the judgment of God and the Lamb. And God uses evil. He, he uses evil to punish evildoers, and he uses evil to perfect his people. And that's what the cross was about, wasn't it? Jesus on the cross, between flanked by two thieves, and the one thief was judged for his evil. He was. But the other thief, by that same cross, was delivered. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. One event, two purposes. Do you hear what, do you hear what John is telling us today? In a world immersed in evil, the God who keeps his people safe, he is in total and complete control. And we say come because God says come. And we say come because the lamb was slain for our sin. And we say come because every tragedy, every tsunami, every inexplicable act of suffering is a megaphone shouting, follow the lamb wherever he goes, follow the lamb. Follow, make Christ your heart's desire today. Today. Have you done that? Huh? I began this message with a video about why bad things happen. I want to close with a video. Fred Winter's wife at his funeral service on Friday. She stood and she spoke for two minutes. I want you to listen to her answer. Okay. My daughters, I think, have said it best, and I'm going to quote them. I want to be just like my daddy. I want everyone to come to know Jesus through this. I hope the man who did this learns to love Jesus. It was not death day for my daddy. It was celebration day. 
the best day of his life. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And one last thing, and I want you guys to remember this, because you see, on Sunday, my husband did not die. Mm -mm. He just simply got a promotion. Well, we're moving on You know, you got to know Jesus to be able to say that. You do. This world is evil. God's people are secure by the God who is in total and complete control. And that's why we can say, and I don't want you to say amen. You know what I want you to say here. That's why we can say, as those living creatures said on three, one, two, three, come, come. Father, Thank you that you are in control. Thank you that you use evil. And that you use evil to deliver us the evil of the cross you transformed, a place where people could only find death. From there, you provided deliverance through your son Jesus. And so, come, come.